Welcome, this is the third interview on Web Payload and today's episode is all about web performance and we've just got the man for the job, it's Tim Cadlick. Welcome Tim. Hey John, happy to be talking about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, can you just tell people a little bit about yourself and your work and some of the things you do in your playtime? <laughs> sure, playtime. I don't. I have uh, I have three daughters, so playtime is is at a, a definite minimum. Um, so I, I work as a, a developer and a, a consultant, um, living in northern Wisconsin in a town of about I don't know two thousand people, and uh, you know just working with a variety of clients, building you know applications and sites that work on multiple devices and platforms and browsers, and always with a heavy em- uh, emphasis on performance. Um, yeah, I also do a little bit of training, and, and I wrote uh, a book, Implementing Responsive Design, um, about how to incorporate responsive design into your, like, what it does with your workflow and your process and everything from start to finish. Yeah, great. So this uh, is all about performance, and let's just make the case. Why is it so important? There's a lot of, there are a lot of statistics that show that performance has a very sizable impact on uh, key performance indicators for a company, uh, you know, so like Amazon, for example, found that when they decreased uh, load time by about 100 milliseconds, for every 100 milliseconds they shaved off their load time, they got a 1% increase in revenue, which uh, considering what their quarterly uh, <clears throat> revenue is, that equates to about $157 million additional dollars each quarter uh, just for a 100 millisecond decrease in page load time. Um, they're one of the more prominent studies that are cited, but there's, I mean, everybody from Mozilla who found out that shaving a few seconds off their load time on their pages increased their conversions, resulting in millions of more downloads of their browser, uh, to Facebook, to uh, Google has done a lot of studies around performance. There's a lot of case studies out there. Just about any business metric that you can think of has probably been tied to performance from bounce rates to revenue to page views to time spent on site. Uh, and it's not really that surprising uh, if we think about it, because the web is a very interactive medium, uh, you know, scrolling up and down a page, you know, clicking a link, submitting a form, hitting a button. These are all interactions and they define the experience that a person has with a site or application. So when you look at it from that perspective, it shouldn't really surprise us that performance is going to have a sizable impact on how effective a site or application is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is really important. There's no question. Can you just give some examples of some heavy sites that you've seen and really bad performing sites? Well, there's there, you don't have to look very far. I think the average site right now is about 1.5 megabytes. And there's there's a ton of them out there that are taking it to kind of an absurd degree. Um, you know, I know Oakley gets thrown around a lot. Uh, when they came out, they were this this massively, ridiculously sized site. Um, and I mean, they, sh- they shrunk it down. They're about 13 megabytes now. Uh, it took a lot of hard work for them to get to that size, but even that's, you know, really massive and huge. Um, you, unfortunately, you can just fire up just about any site that you see launched and you're probably going to start to run into, um, some performance issues before too long. If you just inspect it, I try not to single out, uh, specific sites too much just because I know that sometimes, you know, there's all sorts of constraints that we are not aware of from the outside, and it's easy to kind of throw stones and um, and point fingers at these, you know, obviously messy sites. But a lot of times, unfortunately, it's a condition of the environment. Um, 
that they're working in that's that's forcing these kinds of things to happen, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, can you just give some of the biggest things to watch out for when we're talking about performance, some of the big bad errors? Yeah, well, some of them are very simple. So Steve Sauters came up with this this list of rules a few years back now um, that kind of made up Wiseflow, which was one of the first really good performance tools out there for analyzing performance and kind of telling you what mistakes you might be making and things to fix. Um, and so really it's just there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of simple things you can do to make sure that that size comes down. Uh, the one that never fails to amaze me because it's almost never done is just – compressing the images they could put on a site. Uh, it doesn't even have to be, there's, there's two types. There's lossless and lossy. Um, lossless means that there's no visual impact at all on the image. It's just shaving a bunch of wasted bytes. Um, even just implementing that ha can have a huge impact on some of these sites. I was looking at one site the other day and just doing that saved about 200 to 300K of page weight. Um, and it doesn't take that much to do. There's, you know, little drag and drop applications, you know, Image Optim is a great GUI interface for that. You can also automate it easily from the terminal. Um, but simple things like that, like that, making sure you have gzip enabled, uh, which can seem a little scary to some people because they have to deal with the htaccess file, but there's actually a drop-in-place htaccess file readily available on GitHub where somebody's already figured all that kind of stuff out for you. Um, minimizing JavaScript and CSS and combining them so that you're reducing the requests. I mean, these are all things that are pretty easy to do, uh, but are frequently aren't done, unfortunately. But they can have a sizable impact on page load time. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do, and it is pretty pretty straightforward, a lot of it. Um, so you gave a fantastic talk. I wasn't lucky enough to see it, but over in Germany, and uh, you talked about performance, and in particular planning from the beginning. Can you just go into that, please? Yeah, so... I guess I kind of alluded to it a little bit when I was starting to say that I don't like to point fingers at sites because you never know what's going on um, behind the door, like why those decisions had to be made. Uh, one of the things that I routinely find is that the issue that we're running into with performance on the web is more cultural than technical. We have this list of improvements we can make. We have these lists of guidelines, these technical things that can happen, and we have the tools to get them done pretty easily, and yet they're not in place. And a lot of the times I think that's a that's because when we're working on these projects, performance doesn't get emphasized enough from the very beginning. Uh, it's one of those things that, unfortunately, it's after the product comes out and now suddenly it, everything is slow and then you have to go back and you have to address it at that point. Um, but throughout the development process and the design process, we often don't see those issues, partly because we're working on fantastic machines and incredibly high-speed connections and so a lot of those things kind of get masked. So I think that if we really want to start to reverse this trend of increasing uh, page weight, what we have to do is we have to put an emphasis on it from the very beginning. It has to be incorporated into the process, and you have to have everybody on board and aware of it so that the performance issues are being caught and dealt with and anticipated up front uh, prior to actually going you know, out for launch. Um, that way you can kind of hit those things before your users ever have to deal with them. But that's only going to happen. Yeah, it, The way we're going to improve this is only going to happen if we actually incorporate it into the process from start to finish. Yeah. Uh, one thing to 
to watch for, I guess, is it, we're not just talking about file sizes, um, although they are, they are important. I mean, a two kilobit JavaScript file that's badly coded can cause really big problems if you think about infinite loops and in the worst case scenario. What are some of the things to watch out for when we're talking about frame rates and paint time within browsers? Yeah, you're right. It's not just file size. In fact, I just saw, uh, I haven't had a chance to, to dig through the data, but I just saw something from Etsy the other day uh, saying that they found out that actually for them, at least, rendering performance had an even uh, larger impact on how people behaved with their site than load time did. Wow. So it's not just file size and getting that initial load time down. You also need to be paying attention to how quickly the page renders, um, how scrolling performance and things like that goes. Um, for things like that, you're watching a lot of the, the heavy gradients and drop shadows, especially if you're kind of pairing them up together. Those things can kind of they can slow a page down to a crawl when you're scrolling through or if there's any sort of animation and stuff involved with that. Um, there's you know, so it's making sure that you're testing all of that as well, because that can have just as large of an impact, if not a larger one. Yeah. So how would we accurately go about testing some of this stuff? Um, in like mobile devices and getting an accurate, accurate like uh, connection speed and bits and pieces like that. What are some of the tools that we can use? Well, the key first off is to to use a real device and a real browser as early in the process as you can. Uh, emulators and and things like that. Those things will mask it. And if you're not, if you're just resizing Chrome or whatever it is, you'll miss a lot of the issues that you're going to run into on these devices as well. Uh, once you've got so when you get those real devices fired up, I like to, uh, for the load time perspective, uh, use something like Slowy, which is a cheap like $5 app um, that'll throttle your connection, simulate a, a slow mobile connection or a slow DSL or whatever you want to do with it. You can also use something like my preferred tool is Charles Proxy, which works on Windows or Mac. It's uh, It goes well beyond. It has the throttling capabilities, so you can set all these presets for you know a 3G network or an edge network and and choose your bandwidth and latency measurements from that. But you can also inspect uh, traffic on a request-by-request request basis so that you can see exactly what's being sent on the pipe, uh, how long that's taking, where that's coming from. And it really helps you to pinpoint a lot of those issues when you're using that with like um, a phone paired up to the proxy. You can monitor all that traffic and see what's happening there. So from that perspective, I really like to use those. Um, I think that that's really good to incorporate that into the process and make that experiencing that slow connection part of the, the deal. For the rendering performance side of things, unfortunately, the tools are a little lacking there. That's going to be a lot of uh, just kind of firing it up on these devices and playing around with it and seeing how it feels. There are tools that are getting better. Chrome lets you do a little bit with frame uh, frames per second. I think Mozilla's got something going on, and so does Internet Explorer 11. But for the most part, those tools are kind of primitive. Um, so those things will help. But for the other devices and for the mobile things and things like that, what you'll want to do is uh, really just play around with it. Just use the site and application on those devices and see, uh, watch for uh, the the issues to rear their heads. Right. Yep. So talking about images um, and responsive images originally with responsive web design we were like setting big images and just setting a max width on there can you go into some of the other solutions yeah so that was that was how it was first kind of brought up and you know the width 100 percent max width and that works well to that's what lets the browser do the scaling of the image 
but what we found pretty quickly was that I, I think it was only a few weeks after that Jason Grigsby wrote this post and explained that the original demo site, if you would have served appropriately sized images, you'd have saved about 78% of the weight of those images, which was about 160K, I think. Um, so it was pretty quickly determined that we actually need some solution to serve different images, not just the same image and let the browser scale. Uh, I did a experiment fairly recently using a tool called Sizer Sos. I think I'm mispronouncing it. Um, it turns out there's this whole cultural reference that I totally didn't get. It went right over my head with this. But uh, basically what that lets you do is it fires up a couple sites and you can see at different resolutions how much you would save if you served appropriately sized images uh, versus the images that are getting, you know, just massive images that get scaled down. And what I found was it was about 72% of the image weight could be ditched by using a responsive image technique. Yeah, wow. Uh, that, that number might be... It might not be 100% accurate because it's hard to determine every situation. Um, you know, who knows? In some cases, you, you might have to account for in-betweens. There's images that are going to be hidden in one location and displayed in another. So there's a whole bunch of different constraints that may adjust that. But that's fairly in line with what I find on the projects I work on, which is somewhere, you know, between 60 and and 75% and for the projects I work on as far as reducing page weight as well. So it's a huge improvement. Yeah. Um, it's a big problem, though. People have been fighting with what the correct solution is going to be. And there's, you know, there's a couple standards um, kind of solutions duking it out, which is a source set and picture element. Those seem to have the most steam behind them. Uh, source set actually got implemented a little bit in WebKit uh, from a resolution perspective, uh, like handling, you know, high resolution displays. Um, I actually think they can work pretty well together in conjunction, and there's enough steam behind both of them that I think we could see that happen, but there's still a lot to figure out there. Uh, there's also a solution called Client Hints, which is a server-side solution that would offer a little bit of potential and power there. At the moment, everything that you're choosing is going to be a trade-off. Uh, there's always going to be something that you're giving up no matter what solution you choose. I tend to lean towards Picture Fill, um, which is a... I guess uh, it's not really a polyfill because it doesn't exist, but it's basically letting you do the picture element now today in a browser. And there's actually a branch that uses it um, in conjunction with the source set attributes. So you can kind of pair the two together. Uh, that seems to be the one for me that's worked the best. Uh, the trade-off with that is because it's a JavaScript-based solution, uh, the browser doesn't get to prefetch that image, which can slow things down just a little bit from that perspective. But usually the file savings is worth it. Yeah, that that's my experience. That these solutions are not not perfect. No. Picture fill seems to be the one that's um, that's got the most behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you end up choosing right now, it's probably a good idea if you can. Like if it's in a CMS or something like that, it's probably a good idea to abstract that little component off off to its own uh, include somewhere so that. You know, if you're using picture today and picture ends up not going anywhere and, and source set ends up being, they try to do everything with source set, you can just change that little component, that little include in all of your images throughout the site will get updated. Um, having it sitting, committing to one solution and having it sitting inside the markup on every single page uh, is probably not the best way to handle it at the moment. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about JavaScript 
Uh, how does lazy loading fit into performance? What's your what's your thoughts on that? It can be it can be really powerful. There are a couple considered things to watch out for. Um, so if if you're over a mobile network, it's really expensive to expensive from a time um, perspective uh, and a battery perspective to be able to make a connection to that mobile network. So when you are lazy loading there, you need to be careful that you're not um, continually reopening those connections and, and, you know, quickly draining a person's battery. Um, so it makes sense to do from a perspective of getting that initial page weight down so that the page appears quickly. Uh, but then I would recommend anything that you're going to lazy load that you are pretty confident that people are going to end up needing. Lazy load it very quickly after page load so that you don't waste that that mobile connection so you don't have to make another connection there. Um, but it's it's powerful for shaving weight off for sure. And and even taking it, it's not technically lazy loading, but even taking and making sure that if there's an image that you're not displaying on a small screen that you're going to display on a large screen, if it's a responsive site or something like that, um, not loading that image until you absolutely need it, you know, at, at, at those breakpoints, because it's going to get downloaded anyway if it's in the source code. Um, so there's a lot of different ways it can be used to help. And there's some standards things coming along the, um, coming down the pipe for that too. There's already a few things for scripts to kind of defer um, the loading of those, but there's, they're actually experimenting a little bit with like a lazy, I don't remember if that's the exact attribute name, but something to that extent um, to be able to define that a resource gets loaded after the initial load. Yep. Sounds, sounds really exciting. Didn't, didn't know about that. That sounds, sounds good. So in terms of uh, finances, when we're talking about performance and mobile data plans, uh, I know I was in Germany a few years ago and I was really just checking emails and I got a bill in for £300, which is probably about $500, <laughs> something like that. And it was nothing spectacular doing it on, on the internet at all. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and some of the other examples? And Yeah, so you're getting into like the, the data roaming issues and things like that. And that, that stuff can get heavy. Um, that Oakley site? When it first came out, uh, Andy Clark, uh, a designer there, he um, he did the math and figured out that the data roaming that would cost him about 780 bucks uh, <laughs> to look at on his phone, which you know have to be a pretty awesome site for that. Yeah. And then Ronan Kremen, uh, he wrote a post on MobiForge where he analyzed you know how performance I think as he put it impacts the end user's wallet, and he looked at a couple sites and, and tried to figure out well how much would these cost loaded over a roaming network and um, things like the nextweb.com was $44 a single page and Vogue was $65 a single page. Uh, so the comparison I made with Vogue is that you can either pay $65 for one page of their site or you can buy 15 copies of their magazine. Um, you get to choose. So, I mean, it's, it's a little absurd um, how high and hard that can hit people. Yeah, going back to, to JavaScript, what percentage of users do you see kind of without JavaScript and why is it so important to really concentrate on that? That's a tough metric to, it's a tough metric to get an accurate representation of. Yeah. I think the biggest argument right now for, for that, for considering what happens when there's no JavaScript, um, th there's probably two things. First is that, I can't remember who said it, but basically every user doesn't have JavaScript enabled while that stuff is all downloading, which can take quite a bit of time um, over a certain network or depending on how much weight you have. Um, 
And then the other thing is that you get a lot of solution, a lot of uh, sites right now that are even content sites that have absolutely no reason to be dependent on JavaScript from this perspective at all, but they'll use it to load their content in, in some sort of flashy way. And all it takes is one little bug, one little error in that JavaScript, and all of a sudden the entire site is rendered completely useless. Um, so considering what happens when there's no JavaScript is really, to me, the biggest argument for it is you're just creating a more robust experience. When you consider what happens in those less than ideal situations, you're creating something that's more likely to uh, to stand up and, and perform well and be usable um, on any number of devices and browsers. And with the unpredictability of this platform and how quickly things move, opting for robustness is always a winning solution, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, can you give an overview of what it's about? Yeah, so uh, implementing responsive design is, it's about implementing responsive design. I, um, I, I read Ethan's book, and it's amazing. It's, uh, Ethan's is the book to start with on responsive design, for sure. Uh, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to discuss a little bit more about how it impacts the other parts of the process, um, not just, you know, fluid images, media queries and um, fluid layouts, but actually how that impacts how you work on a project, what your workflow is like, what the content considerations that have to happen and look at some other enhancements you can make to those um, responsive sites. So that's what the book is. It starts off with, uh, you know, the three I guess, cornerstones, the fluid images, the fluid layouts and the media queries. But then from there, it starts to look at, um, you know, how you can how you can communicate this to a client, what kind of deliverables you might want to use, uh, what you have to do from a content strategy perspective, uh, how you can pair it with some server side optimizations to create a, a REST based solution that can give you a little bit more power and, and, and just all sorts of different deep dives into these different um related topics that it impacts. So the idea was that when you were done with this book, you may not have it all figured out in terms of that, but you'd have a good starting point for all of these different areas. And you'd be able to go out then and kind of explore, you know, content strategy in, in deeper detail, um, you know, maybe by following it up with Karen McGrain or Sarah Walker Betcher's book. Um, but it would get you a, a good starting point, fundamental base to work from for all of this. Yep, sounds great. I have to be honest, I haven't read it, but it is in the wish list and I will get to it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Let me know how you like it. I will do, Tim, I will do. Um, so you did organize a conference uh, and you've written a book. How on earth do you find the time for all this stuff? <laughs> I don't sleep. Um, yeah, so I don't do the conference anymore. That was breaking development. Um, I, I worked on that with, with Jeff Frost and, and a bunch of other guys guys and they're all doing it now and doing an awesome job um it's a lot of fun but yeah between that and the book and, and writing and coding and stuff like that um that's why i said i don't have that much playtime. uh thankfully i really enjoy what i do so you know this is fun for me um so you know just last night for example it was just you know got in one of those those awesome kind of grooves where you're just cranking out code and you're like man this is fantastic and it 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 helps to be passionate and excited about what you're working on. That's that's what gets you through it. Yeah. Yeah, we're in a great industry. It's, it's really, really good fun. Kind of seeing my job as a hobby, and it's it's great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Tim, how do people keep up with you and get your book? 
Sure. So uh, the book, you can get the book at implementingresponsivedesign.com. Uh, that'll have links you can jump off to for Amazon, Peach Pit, Barnes and Noble, the whole thing. Um, for, you know, to keep up with me, I guess the best way would be either to, uh, to watch timcadlick.com for occasional, not as frequent as they should be, but occasional blog posts um, or on Twitter at uh, tcadlick. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you.